Good morning. Welcome to our service here at Livingstones Church. We're live streaming right now. And uh, I'd like us to pray this morning. And we're going to believe God for some powerful things today. I want to just express condolences to the Todd family as Jim's father had just passed away this week. And so to them, we're going to pray. Also, there are people in our church family who are experiencing crisis in their life besides the ongoing COVID-19 crisis and the, uh, the temporary layoffs that people are experiencing and all the challenges around this global crisis. But I also want to pray this morning for those that are having medical issues, aside from those issues, the regular challenges. We know just one of the ladies in our church, her name is Kirsten. We want to pray for her. Uh, she just found out she, her leukemia came back. I want to believe God for a miracle. And maybe you're here listening this morning and you have a real need in your life. And I'm going to just ask that you would lift up your heart to God. And I want to agree with you in prayer. We're going to believe for God to do something powerful and supernatural in your life this morning. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you this morning that you are in control of what seems like an uncontrollable situation, but you are ruling and reigning. You're sitting on your throne, as the psalmist says, in the midst of the flood. Father, I pray today that you would grant grace and comfort and encouragement to the Todds as they walk through a time of grief. I pray for those that are struggling economically right now. I pray for frontline health workers, Lord, not only in our community, but around our world that are battling uh, this illness, Lord, that's taking people's lives. I pray as well today for even those in our church family who are battling uh, ongoing medical issues. Some are very serious. We pray for uh, Kristen, Lord. Lord. We pray for Trish. We pray for others, Lord, that are struggling with emotional issues, relational issues, financial issues. Lord, whatever those issues are, you see the cry of the human heart. And we pray today that you administer your healing grace in those situations. And now I pray, Father, as we open up your word, Lord, may we hear that in this amazing uh, story of, of Palm Sunday, may we begin to understand the complexity and the dynamic, the interchange, the underlying tension that Jesus himself felt, Lord, as you felt, Lord, as you were living on earth, moving toward the city of Jerusalem on that uh, little colt, Father, crowds were cheering, but underneath all of that, there was a darkness looming. And you knew about that, and yet you were willing to come and lay down your life for us. Father, I pray today that you would open our hearts and that we would respond in the way that would bring life to us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, how often over the years have we probably looked at the scene called Palm Sunday, a day of great victories we heard earlier in that little video clip. It was a time of great triumph and celebration. But yet, what was really happening on that day? What was happening in the heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus? There was incredible tension leading up to this ultimate moment where Jesus would eventually be crucified. And yes, though it is a moment of celebration, it was also a moment of escalating crisis. Now John's gospel travels over the mounting storm leading to that crucifixion. We're heading into now what we call Holy Week. Jesus had been summoned to come just previous to this to the home of his friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And there was a severe crisis, a medical crisis that eventually led to the death of Lazarus. And we pick the story up here in John chapter 11 and verse one. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. 
And he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whom, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on our Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to, uh, to, to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And as we're gonna find out, as the events play out, we find that Jesus doesn't immediately respond to the need as they thought he should. We can say that often in our lives we have needs and we wonder why God doesn't come to us immediately in that crisis. That's exactly what was happening in the life of Mary and Martha. They were probably saying, Lord, we've been faithful. We've served you. We've loved you. We, we are your friends. Why aren't you here helping us in this moment of difficulty? And they may even have questioned, God, if you really love us, why are you letting us go through this experience? And yet I believe that that's a question that should eventually be settled in our heart. God does love us. And listen to what it says here in verse 5. And Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Well, it's not a question that God doesn't love us. Let's move beyond that. And when he had heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. In other words, he didn't rush in there and do something. And we can already see from that that God's timetable and our timetable are different. And I know a lot of you are saying, when is this COVID-19 coming to an end? I'm going crazy, I'm stir crazy. But I want to just declare to you that God's timetable and ours are so unlike. Not only would God be glorified in this experience, he wasn't just going to come and heal Lazarus. He was going to wait until Lazarus had actually died and do an even greater miracle. And that is raising him from the dead, which I believe caused an even deeper level of faith to emerge in their hearts. And I think that God often does that in our lives. He allows us to go through a time of testing to deepen our faith in him and that it would grow through that experience. Now look what it says here in verse 14. It's not only for our sake, not only for their sake that this happened, but for the sake of many others. And so then it says here, he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And he said... And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, notice the emphasis that I placed on this text, that you may believe. That's really the essence of John's gospel. He's trying to bring us to a place of trust in Christ. And I don't think we can fully understand Palm Sunday without this backdrop, this, this backdrop story, because we go on and discover that it's in response to this miracle that we have this triumphal entry. It's response to this miracle that some who now turn their back away from Jesus and see this as problematic trigger this as the crisis event that brings about his crucifixion. And what we discover is the power of his love winning over death. And yet in that moment of supreme victory, we see the shadow of the cross beginning to loom before Jesus. I want to give you an idea how intense the situation was. Now notice what it says here in verse 16 of chapter 11. When Jesus said, let's go down to Bethany. Bethany is only about a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. Then Thomas called Ditmas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. In other words, Jesus was putting his life at risk 
And the disciples actually understood that. This act of Jesus in raising uh, Lazarus from the dead becomes the triggering event leading to his own death. And I, what I love is that Jesus here is showing his willingness to sacrifice his life for his friend. And not only for Lazarus, but as we're gonna see for all of humanity. It is actually a crystallizing moment. By raising Lazarus from the dead, it brings, as I said, some to tremendous faith in him, but for others, it only begins to reveal the hardness of their hearts. And it says here in verse 45, uh, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him, but then some of them went to the Pharisees and told them, what Jesus had done. In other words, the Pharisees were actually a part of a group of people that were in an adversarial position to Christ. And so they called the meeting of the parliament, the Sanhedrin, and it's there they discussed the implication of what Jesus was doing in their midst. And they were afraid that they would lose their positions of authority under the Romans. And it says in verse uh, 48 here, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Folks, that is the goal, that everyone would come to faith in him. And then the Romans, it says, will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And by the way, because they rejected Jesus, their fears became realized. Then it says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die. This is the, the high priest Caiaphas who spoke up and he said, you guys don't know anything. You do not realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Now, Jesus was well aware of the danger he was in when he went to bring about this miracle to Lazarus. And he realized that this was going to bring him to the end of his earthly life. And the Bible says here in verse 54 of chapter 11, Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples." So the only thing now the leaders were trying to figure out was, where's Jesus? And they were looking for him, and they were asking for help in locating him. And then we move from the raising of Lazarus to the dead to the anointing of Jesus by his sister uh, Mary. And then it starts in chapter 12, verse 1, which is really the beginning of the Palm Sunday story. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had now raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha was serving, typical of Martha. Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, this created a, a, a response. And I think our response to every incident in our lives is actually a revelation of the true nature of our heart's condition. And now we're gonna see the nature of Judas's heart. Verse four of chapter 12, it says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Doesn't that sound like a noble thing to do? And he points out it was worth a year's wage. Now. John was telling us what was motivating his criticism. Verse six, 
He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. In other words, oh, he lost an opportunity to you know, take advantage of the situation. And this is the event that moved Judas to go to the priests and to basically tell them, I will tell you where Jesus will be. And so Merrill Tenney, a New Testament scholar, says this, Jesus' failure to claim royal titles and prerogatives for himself when he exercised miraculous powers may have been the underlying cause for Judas's perfidy, which is really his betrayal of Christ. He goes on to say, contrary to the disciples' expectation of an outward political coup, Jesus carefully refrained from making any pronouncements on issues of state. He talked instead to his disciples about surrendering himself to death. Possibly Judas felt frustrated because the kingdom that he anticipated was not about to materialize. And if the kingdom were not to be immediately manifested, his relationship to Jesus had put him in the position of gaining nothing and losing everything. Not only would he fail to obtain a post in the new realm, but he would, upon Jesus' death, be put under suspicion as a rebel. And if he should take the alternative of betraying Jesus, he would profit financially and would square himself with the victorious priest. So why did Jesus go to Jerusalem knowing that this would lead to his death? Well, we're going to find out. It's because that's why Jesus came. He came to die for all of us. And I see here basically three elements that reveal the significance of this triumphal entry of Jesus. The first is the demonstration of his identity. Here was a moment for him to give people an understanding as to who he is and what he came to do. In fulfillment of the scriptures, Jesus had his disciples go and secure a colt to ride triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus did that, he recognized he was fulfilling the prophet Zechariah's prediction. Now, John chapter 12, verse 12 says, The next day, the great crowd had come for the feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So they're recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. The word Hosanna means to save now. They were anticipating a new kingdom would now materialize. Jesus had found a young donkey and he sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. We're quoting from the book of Zechariah. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. Here their disciples later understand what is happening to Jesus. He's actually fulfilling the word of God in Zechariah 9.9. And then it's made very clear from the context in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, chapter, uh, 9, verse 10, it says, I will take away the cherubs from Ephraim and war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will come proclaiming peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and, and to the rivers to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is actually coming along and basically communicating to the world that he is coming to bring peace. Now, how often is it that our expectation of what God is supposed to do is different than what God actually does? 
And, and I think that happens over and over again in our lives. We, we have an anticipation and then God does something a little differently. And a lot of times what, ha- what happens is we become a little disillusioned with God. Why didn't you do it this way? You know, we, we almost want to tell God how to run the universe at times. The people's expectation at that point was for a king making war against the Romans. By riding on a donkey rather than a horse, Jesus is communicating a very different message. You know, they were looking at Jesus delivering them of a military and political realm. And what Jesus was doing was actually something far more significant. He was gonna deliver them from the power beyond that realm. And we realize, and we heard it earlier said, that Jesus was riding on a donkey, which, is, by the way, is how kings earlier had, had coronation services in the land of Israel. We can see that in 1 Kings here where Solomon is riding uh, David's mule and he's being escorted to Gion and then the priest takes the horn of oil and anoints Solomon and then they shout, long live King Solomon. So what we're seeing here is a picture of Jesus being coronated as the king of the, of the people of God. But the power that Jesus is bringing about is very different from how Rome brought peace into the world. Rome brought peace through military conquest and economic suppression. Jesus brings peace by giving up his own life for us. But let me move on to the second element that reveals the significance of that triumphal entry of Jesus. Not only was it to reveal who he is, his identity, but also it was a declaration of his purpose. How many know that actions often speak so much louder than words? And we can often say talk is cheap, but when we see things being lived out, we eventually get the message. And the reason why Jesus needed to make this declaration, because even his own followers did not understand what was happening here. Verse 16 says in chapter 12 of John, at first his disciples did not understand all of this. They were just, they were living it out in the moment. They weren't fully grasping the significance of what was happening. You know how often it's true in our own lives. You know, we're living in a very unique moment in our time, and I don't think we understand the significance of this moment. And hopefully, as we reflect in hindsight on what we're going through right now, may this time be an opportunity for us to reprioritize our lives the way God intends for us to live. And may good come from this terrible time that we're living in at this point. And said only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things that had been written about him had been done to him. And now we see Jesus approaching the city with the people from Bethany and the people who had witnessed this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. It says in verse 17, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Now how many know this would be a pretty exciting miracle? Uh, you know, I, I've always, I have a little imagination here. I can't imagine, you know, being at a huge funeral service and the person in the coffin all of a sudden sits up and walks out with the rest of the people. I mean, how many th- say that probably would be discussed? That might be communicated. Isn't that true? And, you know, I'm sure that the news about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and by the way, he waited an extra two days. I mean, he was in the tomb for four days. It wasn't like he had just fallen asleep. It, I mean, 
it was not a good situation. They had sealed the stone and everything else. So this was a very profound miracle that Jesus had performed. It says many people, because they heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. And now John gives us an interesting reflection in the next verse. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They were losing control. And isn't that interesting in our lives when we feel like we're losing control, we'll do all kinds of crazy things to somehow gain a sense in our mind that we have control. But the reality is we don't have control. Jesus now extends their understanding of the scope of his mission. What Jesus is about to do is going to move beyond the sphere of even the Jewish nation because he's not just the kingdom and the savior of the Jews. He's the savior of the entire world. And John introduces this idea for us because some Greeks, non-Jewish people, request to see Jesus in John 12, 20. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. In other words, these were people who were... uh, God seekers. They were people who were entranced by this monotheistic understanding of the nature of God. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request, Sir, we would see Jesus. What a great request. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip turned and told Jesus. And we never do find out what the request is. But we have an introduction to the idea that Jesus is reaching beyond just the people in his nation. He's about to bring peace to the entire world. Verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now he's giving us an agricultural principle. That's how it works. You plant a seed, and then it dies, and then it produces many. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their lives, their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So he's giving us a principle, a spiritual principle here. In other words, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, seeds can only produce when they are planted and they die, and they re- reproduce more than they are. And so here Jesus is about to die so others may have life. I believe this is also a model of what he expects of us, his followers, that we will follow him along the same path of laying down our lives for the sake of others. Now, this could mean physical death, but more often it simply means laying aside our rights, our desires for the sake and the welfare of other people. The statement that the person who hates their life in this world, I don't think it means that you know, we take this so literally to think that we're just hating ourselves. That's not what he's getting across here. What it may be is that at times we, we put aside our own human desires as a way of honoring and, help, and doing God's purposes in our lives. Now Jesus corrects their, in, their incorrect perception of the event. In his prayer to the Father to be glorified through his life purpose, which part of it is dying for humanity, we hear the voice of the Father speaking from heaven. Verse 27 says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. 
Then he says it, Father, glorify your name. You know, if we really want to learn about what it's like to be like Jesus, here it is. Lord, help me to bring glory to your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit and not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. In other words, the way to defeat evil is to do good. The way to overcome death is to basically lay down our self-life. And that's what Jesus is showing us here. He's, he says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now here Jesus is talking about being crucified. Yeah, and other New Testament writers, when they talk about Jesus being lifted up, many times they're talking about his exaltation. But here John is giving us very, uh, very definitive description. He's now talking about his crucifixion. And what Jesus is saying is when he dies this way, when he's crucified, and then eventually when he's exalted by being raised from the dead, he will bring people to himself. The crowd does not understand that Jesus has to die. They don't understand that the concept of the Messiah, the anointed one, has to be die, uh, suffer and die. Their expectation of what he is about is so different. In verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that Christ, or the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for Christ, which is the Christos, the anointed one, will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So they don't understand that the Messiah must suffer. They don't understand what Isaiah 53 is predicting. They seem to assume it's their nation that's suffering rather than the individual suffering servant being the Messiah. Jesus now challenges them to believe in him in verse 36. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. And what is Jesus asking of us? That in the hours to come, when the crisis hits and he, he is crucified, his disciples then would have to put their trust in him. And, and I look at this in all of our situations because when crisis does come into our lives, um, what we need to realize is the only healthy response is to trust in God in spite of how we feel and think. Isn't that the truth? That's, that's the option. There's only two responses to everything in life. We either trust God or believe in him when we believe that God's in control and that what he's gonna do is ultimately for good or we become disillusioned, dissatisfied, frustrated, angry and we, you know, we retaliate and we try to manage things in our own strength and understanding and we just end up in despair. We have two options. Well, the final element revealing the significance of this triumphal entry of Jesus is really the revelation of the disbelief in the human heart. So what we're gonna see now is, you know, even in the midst of an amazing miracle, people still didn't believe. And you'll see how strong this is in our hearts. People were rejecting the message of Jesus. They were rejecting what he was doing. That, that's very stunning, but you know what? That still happens today. And Jesus now explains the reason for it. Here we find a description of unbelief. And it says here, we see this deliberate rejection of Christ in spite of all that he said and did in verse 37. Even after Jesus 
had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Isn't that amazing? And I always have people say, you know, Pastor, if this person only saw a miracle, they'd believe. And I go, well, listen, that's not true because people can see miracles and still refuse to trust and believe in him. And it says here that God revealed through the prophet Isaiah that his own people, the Jewish people, would reject his message, Isaiah's prophetic message to them at that time. But now we can see why they're even rejecting the Messiah here uh, 700 years later. In John chapter 12, verse 38, it says, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So we discover now the reason for their unbelief in verse 39. For this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah said elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes, deadened their hearts so that they neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. Excuse me, and if they would turn, the Bible says, I would heal them. Now why shouldn't it surprise us that people don't believe? And again, I want to quote uh, Merrill Tenney. He says, not only did prophecy describe unbelief, it also explained it. He says, why should not the hearers of Jesus believe in him when the sign so unmistakably accredited his claims? And John quotes Isaiah 6 to show that unbelief is the result of the rejection of life. So Isaiah had an incredible insight into what was about to happen in a very profound moment in his life, and in, in the sense, in the, in a creating actually a national crisis in Israel. Now, Isaiah, in his day, they had a crisis moment. And here was the crisis moment. And he quotes chapter six to show that unbelief is that result of rejection light. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah was a king who reigned for over 50 years. You can imagine the stability he brought in the nation. He says, in that year, when everything seemed to be falling apart, he said, I saw the Lord. He had a vision of God. Folks, I tell you right now, in this moment, this COVID-19 crisis, this could be actually one of our greatest moments because in this moment, we could have a vision of seeing the Lord high and lifted up. He said, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphs. That's one of the categories of angels, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. It says, and they were calling out to one another, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, it's in this context that Isaiah has a revelation. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He has an experience with God. He has this encounter. He recognizes, even as a, a man of God, his own sinfulness. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he goes on to say, as he hears uh, the triune God speak to each other, who will go for us? Who will speak my message? And Isaiah says, hear my Lord, send me. And then God reveals to Isaiah that people still would not hear what he was having to say. And Isaiah, though, went and proclaimed the message even though people refused to listen to what he was saying. But here's the most exciting thing, and this gives us a little insight into the nature of Jesus. When John is telling us this story about Isaiah, it says here in verse 41 of chapter 12, Isaiah said this, 
because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isn't that amazing? He didn't say Yahweh's glory. He said Jesus' glory because Jesus and Yahweh are the same person. What do we need in this hour of crisis but a renewed vision of God on the throne? We need to see him as being in control. And John goes on to tell us that some believed and even lacked the courage to stand up for what was true and right. And I think that's true today. There are people, I will call them kind of uh, muted Christians. They're silent. You know, they don't want to actually stand up because they're afraid of what culture and society has to say. But I want to just pray that God would break us out of that uh, fear that holds us from really standing up for God. In verse 42, it says, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. In other words, there would be a loss in their life. For it says they loved human praise more than the praise from God. And I pray that God would deliver us from that. Everything about the waving of the palm branches, the declaration of their faith in the Messiah, the tensions between those who were threatened by Jesus and intimidating into keeping the status quo, rejecting Jesus in spite of all that they had heard and witnessed, Palm Sunday is more than just a moment. Actually, it's a declaration. It's a demonstration of his identity, his declaring his purpose, revealing the unbelief in the human heart. It actually is a moment of crisis. Palm Sunday is a place of crisis, not only for Jesus, but also for the people. And I believe that even as Palm Sunday reflects all of these things, it also speaks of the crisis in our own time and in our own lives. You and I are being challenged by this present crisis. We may not understand what God is doing in our lives, when our expectations are not realized, when God is trying to call us to die to our own human agendas in order to fulfill his will and obey his word, when he asks that we do the right thing for the sake of others, though not always what we want to do in the moment. It's a call to trust in him. As Jesus said, put your trust in the light so that you may become the sons and daughters of the light. And I want to pray as we close the service right now. You know, as you're hearing these words, this Palm Sunday crisis, folks, we're living in that moment and you and I can respond either with trusting God, even though we don't fully comprehend what's happening, or we, we move to a statement of, of scoff and unbelief and uh, despair and disillusionment, you know, and, and writing God off. I mean, there's only two responses to the human heart. And, you know, the scriptures keep bringing that out over and over and over again. We'll either trust him or we won't. And my prayer today is that you and I would make a decision in our heart. We would resolve and say, Lord, I may not understand all things, but I know that you're a good and loving God. I know that you've demonstrated love for us. You have forgiven us. And so today, I want to put my trust in you. Today, I, I want to turn away from my agenda and embrace your agenda. Not my will be done, but your will be done. And so let's pray. Father, I just thank you that this moment of time, even that there was a moment of time 2,000 years ago, moving all the way back, Jesus, you came on the scene. You made a declaration of who you were. 
And for some, they embraced you and experienced the wonderful forgiveness of sins. Many of them experienced uh, miraculous signs in their lives. Some were healed. Some were even raised from the dead like Lazarus. Lord, I just pray right now that you would do powerful things in our lives. Help us to put our faith and our trust in you, even in times of uncertainty, even in times when we don't understand. Father, I pray that our hearts would just cling to you. And Lord, I pray that you would destroy the darkness in our own hearts, the unbelief, the fear. Lord, being more concerned about, you know, what people think or say, but be, but Lord, help us to be more concerned about what you think and about what you say. Help us, O oh God, to grow in this season of time, in this difficult season of time, to get stronger and deeper in our faith. And Lord, if we don't know you very well, I pray today that we would turn our hearts to you. We would call out to you, Jesus. Your word says, they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Help us, Lord, to call out to you in this time and to experience a peace that we've never known to experience a joy we've never had, to experience a hope that transcends even life's most challenging moments. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Hope to see you Friday as we celebrate Good Friday together. Bless you now.